have to admit, I'm a little bit disappointed. Um, whenever Rachel Glass told me last week that she was planning for a lot of heavy metal at Crescent this week, I was, this isn't what I was expecting. <laughs> if, if you are visiting with us this evening, uh, this is the final installment of a four-week series looking at the book of Nehemiah. Tonight we will be following on from what David was teaching us this morning, looking at chapter 13, which, was the, which is the last chapter in the book. Over the past four weeks, we've been considering how Nehemiah, an Israelite in exile, a high-ranking official in the Persian courts, with the king's permission, returned from Jerusalem, returned to Jerusalem, Jerusalem and led a movement of God's people to rebuild the decrepit city walls and restore the city to its former glory. The people responded to Nehemiah's vision and rose to the challenge. Despite what must have initially seemed like an insurmountable task, they had a mind to work, and they committed themselves to the task ahead of them, working in unity and under the prayerful administration of Nehemiah. Even in the face of opposition on multiple fronts from the nations surrounding Jerusalem, they remained steadfast and made excellent progress, completing the wall in just 52 days. As they labored with expectation for the God who fought for them. After they'd completed the wall, uh, the gifted Bible teacher Ezra publicly taught the people truths from God's word in a way that had never been, hadn't been done in generations. In response, they confessed their sins, and in repentance, they renewed their covenant commitment to God. Ollie was telling us last week how the entire movement comes to a climax in chapter 12 with the triumphant dedication of the wall in joyful singing. The people returned their thanks to God for his faithfulness and acknowledged that it was only because of him that they were able to achieve what they did. They did this at the temple, God's house. Here we see God, the God of heaven dwelling in the midst of his restored people in joyful, reconciled relationship. Israel were free to worship and declare the glory of their God, the one true and living God, to the neighboring nations and far field. Now, if I was writing the book of Nehemiah, I think I would have finished it there. Joyful singing, uh, triumphant uh, and restored. I think if this was a Netflix original, that this would probably be the last episode. Cut, roll credits, and then we can all go feel hoping, feeling good about ourselves. But that's not how the book of Nehemiah ends. It ends in chapter 13, which we're going to look at this evening. And as David has taught us this, this morning, when Nehemiah returned from a period of fulfilling his duties back at the Persian courts, he finds that not all is not well in Jerusalem. At the center of the temple, the center of Israel's worship, and what is supposed to be God's dwelling place, we find Tobiah, the outspoken enemy of God who had so often tried to undermine and hinder the work of Israel. So with that in mind, let's read our passage for this evening. You'll find it in Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 10 to 31, and that's page 
409 in the Pew Bibles. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. But Shelemiah the priest, Sadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah, I put in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for, their distribu- for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem, who were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem, but I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of the other, other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled on out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joadah, son of Elashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign 
and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provision for, for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. You can imagine how Nehemiah, when he traveled back from, to Jerusalem from the Persian capital, must have felt. He must have been filled with a real sense of promise and expectation of what Israel had done in his absence. Instead, he finds that the music had faded, the spirit of reformation and revival had drifted off into indifference and a coolness towards God. The nation had turned its focus away from the temple, which was being neglected. There was a willful disobedience to God, God's word, in, in their disregard for the Sabbath day, and they were again starting to intermarry with blurring of the lines and a lack of distinctiveness between Israel and the surrounding nations. So what happened? In chapter 12, things seemed to be going so well, and here we are in chapter 13 in this very precarious state of decline. Without intervention, this nation of Israel, who with God's help had achieved so much and were full of so much promise for the future, would have been completely assimilated into the surrounding nations without distinctiveness, without power, without purpose. In healthcare, when something goes wrong and results in, let's say, a patient's death, we perform a root cause analysis to get to the bottom of what actually happened and try and stop, what, stop it happening again. Here, Nehemiah does something similar. And it sounds like it didn't take him long to identify three major feelings. They were the three commitments Israel, the very same three commitments Israel had solemnly swore to uphold in chapter 10. The first thing he does is bring the officials together and say, why is the house of God neglected? The temple, the house of God, had not only been neglected, it had actually been completely abandoned. The lack of provision for it had forced the Levites, who were responsible for the service and sacrifices within the temple, to co-fend for themselves in the fields so they could feed themselves and their families. With no Levites, there was no sacrifices. And with no sacrifices, there was no atonement for sin. And with no atonement for sin, there was no reconciled relationship with their Lord in heaven. No longer did the one true living God dwell in the temple of Jerusalem in the midst of his people. No longer was he at the center of their lives, at the center of their worship. Nehemiah says, this is where it started to go wrong, and this is where we need to start in order to put things right. After Israel had failed to put God at the center of their lives and worship, it's astonishing how quickly things start to unravel and, and fall apart. Once their focus moves away from God, it shifts towards themselves and the nations and people around them. They start to lose faith in the promises of God, promises like Leviticus 26. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send rain. The ground will yield fruit. You will eat all the food you want, and you'll live in safety within the land. 
They failed to rest in those promises and doubted if he really would provide for them. They looked to the surrounding nations with their apparent success and sophisticated cultures. The fear of falling behind or missing out led to the prioritization of profit over obedience to God's word. Now, it could be easy to look with judgment at the Israelites over 2,000 years later. But whenever we look at ourselves, have we ever prioritized our own furtherment or over obedience to God or honoring him in our own lives? When we're filling out our tax returns for our businesses, but we don't take time out of our busy lives to read God's word and pray because we're too busy studying for exams or trying to get to the next run in the career ladder. Well, Nehemiah reminds Israel of the previous times Israel had neglected to keep the Sabbath in attempts to boost their own wealth and success. How far from bringing them success and relevance in the world, it actually resulted in their failure and weakness and loss of their identity. As a Christian or as a church, we also should not fall into the trap that says obedience to God's word will make you lose out or fall behind. In a world of Instagram influencers and Twitter storms, you shouldn't believe the lie that if you don't look a certain way that you won't be loved or if you dare to disagree with the prevailing popular opinion on a certain topic that you won't be credible. Instead, we should rest in in faithful obedience to the promises of God. Next, the Israelites began to intermarry with the surrounding nations, taking on their cultures and ideologies. We read that they taught their children their languages and practices. This wasn't just a select few either. It stretched right up to the high priest, Eliashib, and his family. The high priest's son was married to the daughter of none other than Sam Ballot, the Horonite. If you've been here before, you'll know who he is if you've been here during this series. But if you don't, he's one of the, he's the worst, the most outspoken enemy of Israel in the province. And here we see the insidious infiltration of God's enemies and ideologies right to the heart of the nation of Israel without so much as a challenge. It begs the question, what was the point in building a wall to protect the distinctiveness of Israel from attack and influence from surrounding nations? If you're just going to open the gates and welcome your enemies in. Now, please don't misunderstand. As David was reminding us this morning, Nehemiah wasn't a racist or some sort of insular xenophobe. He wanted people to know the God of Israel. And God had graciously provided provision in his law for people to join the nation of Israel. As David said this morning, Ruth, the Moabitess, became the great-grandmother of King David. However, 
If they wanted to do so, they needed to do so within the framework provided by God and subject themselves to his laws and ordinances. It's these well-demarcated boundaries that were necessary to protect the identity and effectiveness of Israel as the people of God. The Lord Jesus said, You're the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The seriousness of this situation becomes apparent when we read in verse 24 that half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod or the languages of the other nations but did not speak the language of Judah, the language of God. You see, if the children can't speak the language of God, they can't read the word of God and they can't know God even if they wanted to. Here we see the sad consequences of our own spiritual neglect, not just on ourselves, but on those we're responsible for and for the generations to come. So, over the past four weeks, we've considered how God's grace and through his faithful leadership, Nehemiah, the faithful leadership of Nehemiah, Israel had rebuilt Jerusalem's walls. They renewed the covenant with God and rededicated themselves to God in triumphant joy and thanksgiving. Now we see that they've allowed themselves or some, allowed someone or something to take the rightful place of God at the center of their lives and at the center of their worship. After that, everything starts to fall apart with a calamity of failures. The temple's abandoned, the covenant was disregarded, and they had once again opened themselves up to the attacks and influences of the surrounding enemies of God. Their hearts were far from God, and they were without distinctiveness, without power, and without purpose. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. You can remember a time in your own life when you walked closely with God. You had a tangible sense of his presence, of joy and peace, even in the midst of life's challenges. But something happened and allowed something or someone to become more important than God in your life. Sin crept in, and that resulted in guilt and shame that caused you to distance yourself even further from God. You still go to church and maybe keep up appearances, but if you're honest, your heart's far from him. Well, there's a, there's a sort of brutal realism to chapter 13 that I think, if we're honest, that most of us could relate to at some stage when looking back over our Christian lives. Maybe you even feel like that this evening. Well, I would argue that this chapter, with its catalogue of failures and, in, and Israel's inability to keep their covenant with God, should give you and me hope. Hope. 
When speaking about our failure, C.S. Lewis once wrote, it cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. We learn, on one hand, that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments, and on the other, that we need not despair even in our worst, for our failures are forgiven. So what do we do when we find ourselves in chapter 13, longing to be back in chapter 12? Well, the answer is actually in chapter 1. We repent. That's to say that we stop and turn away from the thing or things that have ensnared our hearts and taken the place of God in our lives. And we, like Nehemiah did, confess our sins to God and ask him to forgive them. Because Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of our sin on the cross, God now can say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Be it the first time or the 500th time, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how far your heart strayed from him or the extent of the burden of sin in between. Though your heart may have grown cold towards him, the way he feels about you has not changed. And his faithfulness towards you has not changed. He longs that you would come to your senses, that you'd turn back to him, the one who loves you, and the only one who can truly satisfy the desires of your heart. God will never violate your will. He won't grab you by the beard or beat you in order to get you to obey him. Instead, he demonstrates his love to us. He does that ultimately through his son, the Lord Jesus, who died for us even when we had our backs to him. That's what changes our hearts as Christians. It's through a deeper understanding of who he is and what he has done for us. It's his faithfulness to us, even in the face of our unfaithfulness and repeated failures that should drive us to repentance and worship with him. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk day by day with its shadow o'er me. It's the acknowledgement of our dependence on him as well as the expulsive power of a new affection for Christ that will keep us from sin and spiritual neglect in our own lives. That's a responsibility that we all have here at present as we build for the future. Father God, we have been reminded of your faithfulness to us, of your grace and of your mercy. And Lord, we've got to confess uh, that uh, we find the Christian life difficult, that it is not always easy to obey you. And so we confess that we have let you down, even in this past week. And we thank you that you're a gracious God, because not only do you tell us that you will forgive us, but you uh, give us by your Spirit the power to go forward, 
the power uh, to um, conquer uh, this world and all of the evil in it, the power to do what you would have us to do. And so, Lord, we renew ourselves once again and ask, Lord, that you would help us uh, in keeping to your ways. We know that your ways are perfect. Uh, They are wonderful to us. And so we thank you uh, for opening our minds once again to the ability to worship you because we know that that's what we were created for in the first place. So help us to worship you uh, fully uh, this week in spirit and in truth. Uh, We pray, Lord, for those who do not yet know you, and we pray that they would be uh, inspired, uh, convicted by you to to know you as their own personal uh, saviour. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and pray that you be with us in all that we're doing this week. In Jesus' name, amen.